1 through 17. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not who all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of and not all are children of Abraham because they are, are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offsprings. For this is what the promise says, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. <clears throat> and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, that they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says, <clears throat> for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for uh, your word that you have given to us. We pray now as, as Robert comes and expounds this, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that we would be open and that you would speak to us according to our needs. And we just thank you for for this word to us in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So as we read the text today and, and good morning to the folks on zoom, by the way, as we do read the text today, you can see that there are a variety of issues that arise from Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine is indeed a handful to deal with. Whereas reading Romans chapter 8 in the last section of Romans chapter 8 is something that virtually every Christian just rejoices and shouts and dances together. You've got the Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Baptists all giving each other high fives over Romans chapter 8. But when Romans chapter 9 comes, the high fives stop and the denominations and the division begins. It's a divisive chapter because it, prevent, it presents a view of God that is uh, difficult for our flesh to immediately absorb, like those of you who have learned to drink hard liquor straight. It's an acquired taste. 
and you do not immediately upon the first taste of such a vile liquid uh, say to yourself, well, my goodness, that's something I need to drink again. That was good. No, that's not the first thing that runs through your mind. The first thing that runs through your mind is, I have drunk Drano. I, 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 have, I have ended myself with this liquid. And Romans chapter 9 has the same effect. It has the same sort of impact on us as we receive it. Indeed, Romans chapter 9 takes some preparation. You have to make proper preparations because if you attempt to jump into Romans chapter 9 without the wisdom and the comfort of Romans 1 through 8, you'll find yourself in a terrible situation. There was a fellow, uh, a couple of guys have attempted to do this. They decided that they wanted to see how high weather balloons could take them. So they attached a number of weather balloons to lawn chairs and floated up into the air with weather balloons, lawn chair, and a pellet gun. And they went as high as they could, taking pictures as they go, and they went suborbital. They went so high that oxygen uh, became an issue, cold became an issue, frostbite became an issue. And you have to take certain preparations when you attempt certain things, certain matters before you, or else the result is injury. Indeed, I don't think very many churches have split over Romans chapter 8, but denominations have been formed, sides have been formed, names have been called over how Romans 9 uh, lands in your heart and how you deal with it. And so as you read, as you continue through the book of Romans, I want to warn you, this is dangerous territory. There is difficulty that lies ahead unless you do what I hope to do today. What I hope to do today is to give an overall revisiting of the book of Romans chapter by chapter, showing the content of each chapter briefly, showing the argument that Paul is building so that with that as the preparation, you'll then be ready to move through the rest of the book of Romans. By way of illustration, there was, all of us have been caught in frightening thunderstorms before. Sometimes ones that left us frightened and, and wondering if we were gonna, if we were gonna make it. I certainly have been in storms like that. There was a famous young man who took a walk in a famous storm who, and he called out to Saint Anne to save him as the thunderbolts struck the ground around him. His name was Martin Luther. It's hard to imagine a more intriguing man God used lightning to speak to this man, and indeed he functioned as both a lightning rod and a lightning bolt to the church for his life. 
Born in Germany in in 1483, Luther was raised in a devout Catholic home during a time when there was a lot of corruption and carnality in the Catholic Church. When Luther was nearly struck by lightning in 1505, he changed his course uh, becoming a lawyer. He was already in training to become a lawyer, had, was already set aside as a very bright prospect. But instead, from that moment on, he vowed to become a monk with a sincere desire to serve God who had shown him mercy in the lightning storm. And so he dedicated himself to the church and to his studies, even though he had been studying to become a lawyer. And so his lawyer's mind would show itself to be invaluable as Luther began to read the Bible. He hadn't done that before. He began to study the, the scriptures, and he came upon Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and this was really the important verse for him, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so the long, the, the young lawyer's mind got a hold of that verse and, and it began to reorient him. He reflected on that verse and on the whole argument of the book of Romans and, and, it, and flowing forth alongside of that was his own torment, his own doubt. He knew from his own life and his own constant, reoccurrent, obsessive, compulsive doubts that he couldn't be righteous in his own strength. He had tried and he had failed. Day and night, Paul Luther wrestled with this verse until in 1515, he realized that only faith could cause him to be righteous, that only God's power working through the gospel could bring salvation to those who believe, that righteousness or living a a life pleasing to God in your motives, your action, everything, that could only come from God. Up until that point, Luther had used the common Roman Catholic way of approaching this, that I'll make myself righteous, and then I can live by faith. But then suddenly Luther understood the argument of Romans, that that's backwards, that Romans 1 showed that you begin with faith. And so that was the beginning. That was the start of the book of Romans, the start of our uh, messages that began so long ago, and the start of the argument that began to untangle this poor lawyer's mind. I want to look this morning at Romans 8 briefly. We're going to do an overview of the book so far, and that's going to help us understand the rest of the book. 
In chapter 1, Paul declares, and you can open up your Bibles and kind of coast along with me here. Paul declares his faith, his desire to come to Rome. And he begins to explain his own transformation, his own transformation from that of a religious terrorist murderer to an apostle. And the best way he can succinctly do that is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, as I read before. Romans 1 unlocked and revealed the core principle that had transformed Paul's life. And it also revealed the world's rebellion against this principle that had transformed him. This God who is not only revealed in special revelation of Scripture, but in all of creation. For Paul, the argument was this to start off with. The gospel of God gives us the power to live the Christian life. But the world and the church of his time was in denial. Chapter 2. God is right to judge everyone as we know from our consciences. We don't even need the Bible. We know from our consciences that we wrongly condemn others all the time. The Jews are as guilty as the Gentiles are of this because just knowing the law doesn't make you free from its obligations and your obligation to your own conscience. Indeed, quite the opposite. The law makes you and your understanding of it makes you more guilty because you should know better. Paul then builds on the first chapter by saying that even if the world and the church is in denial of the power of the gospel to rescue poor sinners, they're still guilty. And their excuses, oh, I didn't know, or, uh, but I was Jewish, uh, that doesn't matter. Those excuses won't matter. Chapter 3. The content is that everyone has sinned, and so no one can boast, neither in their own personal righteousness or in their grasp of the righteousness of God coming to us through Christ Jesus. All will be silenced on the day of judgment, and God has found a way to make us right with Him that doesn't depend on our own goodness, our own intelligence, and it's found in Romans 3, 24 and 25, it is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The anger, the appropriate anger and wrath of God against sinners that ordinarily would make it impossible to offer them this righteousness has been set aside by Christ's own substitution. The argument continues now that these excuses that Jews, Gentiles, these excuses of primarily of the Jews that are making that they are no better than the Gentiles, that actually no race can boast except in the cross of 
Christ. The content of chapter 4. Even in the Old Testament, people were justified by faith, Paul says. Abraham was justified by faith. David was justified by faith. This covenant symbol of circumcision that the Jews had so much pride in, that came before there even was a Jewish race. And so this ceremonial surgery doesn't set apart the Jews as special. It sets apart those who have the promise of justification by faith alone as special. So, just because the, they, the Jews have the various sacraments that are present in the law, that doesn't justify them. Worldwide salvation, Paul's argument now continues, this worldwide salvation that has come through Christ's ministry, through the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, isn't coming because of here are fresh rituals, new rituals that we have. Or here's a culture that needs to spread all over the world. No, the worldwide message is that every race is lost, but the good news is that salvation has gone out to every race. A salvation that doesn't mean you have to convert to being a Jew, culturally speaking, to be saved. This leads us to Romans Five, And we begin to approach now the peak, the glory, and the joy of what Paul has to say to us. As Romans 5 reveals that now we can be right with God through faith. Not through us getting our lives in order and getting everything set up just right. But through faith, we can have peace with God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the righteous work of the second Adam, it's one of those technical terms that Paul uses, Jesus Christ is the second Adam. The first Adam fell, failed in his mission that God gave him. Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul says, who is succeeding and where his, he was given in his mission as Satan tempted Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve fell as Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. Jesus perseveres through that temptation. He's the new Adam. In that, now there is a new race flowing forth now from the second Adam, ones that are not burdened with the consequences of the sin of the first Adam. We've now been set free because we are covenantally connected to Christ instead of Adam. And so the logic now is that this worldwide salvation that brings peace with God, that no one can make any excuses for not hearing since it comes to us through both our conscience and through the preached word, this worldwide need that's so very clear that we have now how we get it is made clear through the special revelation, through the preaching of the gospel. And this new Adam will bring rescue, not sin and burden and shame, 
but he will make a new humanity, a new family. Romans chapter 5 begins to address the guilt that burdens the hearts of sinners. In chapter 6, he continues to reveal more of the details about this gospel of grace and its impact on us as he gives us the data that we can now live in this new identity, which is dead to sin, which is cut off from this relationship with the old Adam, and now we're in the new Adam. We're alive to Christ. We're alive to everything that he has for us, and we can count ourselves as slaves, Paul uses as a metaphor, to Christ and not to our old sinful desires. And so the logic is that this new humanity is now granted a new identity that's connected to a new master. The old humanity under Adam has the old life that chains us to sin and to death. But this new humanity under this new Adam, Jesus Christ, those chains are broken. And now we're united to him. This, Romans chapter 6, is where you go to learn about how shame is addressed in the Christian life. Chapter 7, we have been freed from the law's condemnation. And while the law could never kill sin, it could kill us. Christ sets us free from that. The law can still instruct our minds. It can still help us live lives that are more pleasing to God, but it can't give us a new nature that would enable us to uh, fully be transformed and to please God in such a way that we would have a fresh relationship with Him. The law could never do that. So Romans 7 shows how we've been freed from the chains of the law, if we dare believe it. And now it can be used as a helpful tool in the Christian life. Chapter 8 then, the final chapter in our summary and where we've landed last week. It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ living within us then that enables us to keep the law of God and please Him as was intended from the very beginning from the Garden of Eden. We're adopted sons of God. And as much, we're marked by the same kind of life that Jesus Christ experienced. Suffering will be as inevitable in the Christian life as glory is. That's what we see in Romans 8, is this mingling of suffering and glory, of joy and sadness that comes at us and that we experience with such a ferocity that we would often wonder, am I going to make it? Paul says, yes, you're going to make it because I have predestined you to become like Jesus. 
that's the only way you're going to make it. So the argument then is that chained to the law, we gained the only reward that you get from the law. Guilt, shame, and death. United to Christ, we get his full reward. But it includes suffering as well as glory. And it's that dark, ugly often mixture of suffering and glory that accompanies the Christian life and makes quite necessary on an emotional level, theological level, on an argument level from the book of Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul has to make clear that neither height nor depth nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's kind of a long introduction, but that's kind of the introduction that we have to the book of Romans that prepares us to take a peek into the next section. Now, what I'm going to do is give you now an overview of the rest of Romans. Jesus's substitutionary suffering, stepping between his elect and the Holy Father before God now my sin is completely absent. And on the cross, God, God's son suffered the hell and shame and separation for his people. And now for all who believe, when God looks at us, it's not our ugly face that he sees, but he sees Christ himself in all of his glory when he looks at his children. You deny the need for this for whatever reason. I'm too young to worry about such things or I'm rich or I'm Presbyterian. Whatever it is that you use to avoid the eternal necessity of trusting in Christ for your righteousness, one day you will stand before God and you will be dressed in your own righteousness and you'll get what you deserve. Or Romans 1 through 8. Or you will get the favor, the honor, the victory, and you'll get it forever. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. So do you believe that? Well, here comes the test. The test is everything else in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, it's talk of election and predestination of God choosing those 
who will receive justice and choosing those who will receive mercy. This is the test to see if you have understood and, and received Romans 1 through 8 as to whether you have believed and embraced salvation that is truly by grace from a gracious God who saves his people. If we believe that salvation must be a little bit, it has to be a little bit according to my own goodness, according to my own worth, according to my own value, then we will squawk and we will cry out about Romans 9. Because Romans 9 has God choosing whom he saves solely out of his grace and kindness and mercy and not out of their merit. Now, if we believe God, on the other hand, is primarily motivated by love and that love provides the primary motivating power behind everything God does, then this dangerous an unbiblical notion about God, which stands in stark contrast to Romans 1 through 8, will cause you to reject predestination and election as is found in Romans 9, in Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 2. You'll reject it because it will feel cruel and you'll read it and you'll say, well, that's not just how my God works. That's not my God. I agree. It's not your God. I understand. I concur. You see, Romans 1 through 8 is the classroom where we get introduced to the God of grace. And Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, and so on is the test as to whether or not we can believe it and apply it. It's one thing to have a, a truth, and it's another thing to apply it. If you read Romans 9 and say, well, what, 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 what about free will? I got my free will, and the free will, I don't see enough free will in Romans 9, and so I've got a problem here. Well, you didn't say that in Romans 8, when I said that there was no created thing that could separate you from love of God and you and your free will and my free will, that in, is included in that description. I didn't see anybody fuss about that on social media or get mad about it. Because we like God's sovereign power when it uh, uh, fixes our greatest needs. We appreciate it then. We didn't protest when in Romans 5... Paul said, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What Reconciled while we were enemies? Before I chose him? Before I used my will to choose him? I was pre-reconciled? I didn't hear you fussing about free will then. Well, I was different, pastor. Yeah, it is. It is different. Ignoring these matters of, of uh, radical personal autonomy when it suits us, and at other points, 
embracing our limitations as humans is just part of the human condition. We all like to shift blame around where I'm my own man and I make my own decisions over here and nobody can tell me what to do. And well, I just did it because the general told me to do it. We, we kind of go back and forth between those two matters in our own personal life and our way of handling the crisis of responsibility. Romans 1 through 8 tries to coax us out of that bipolar, nightmarish, moving around, trying to avoid blame. Tries to assure us that that's no longer necessary for children of God. Free will does exist. Don't let anybody tell you that free will doesn't exist. Reformed theology, the scripture says it does but it's not freer than God's grace. It's not freer than God's will. And so while it does exist, our free will works in coordination with God's own plan and purpose of the universe. Look up compatibilism if you want to study out the theology on that. Romans 9 is the exam, but it's not the final exam. Romans 10, moving more quickly now, tests us, <clears throat> tests us when it says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Does that mean that there are people who will not hear the preached word and will not be saved? Well, the answer is found in Romans 1 through 8, if we can believe it and put it into practice. Romans 11 is a test mostly for the Jewish culture of that time, not as applicable to us today, as they receive the final opportunity to trust in Christ rather than their own culture. As Paul warns them, there is a time when the Spirit will draw Jews to Jesus, and there is a time when he will not. And so the answer as to whether this is fair or not, as to whether this is right or not, has created a multiplication of theological answers to how to handle Romans chapter 11. We will not explore those. However, Paul warns them, and the answer to whether this is fair or not, that there is a time that God extends the gospel for salvation, and there's a time when he withdraws it. The answer to whether this is fair or not is found in Romans 1 through 8, specifically Romans 3 and 4. Now, Romans 12 through 15 are about living the Christian life in light of the gospel of grace because those who believe in a more works-oriented salvation, they constantly were coming back to Paul saying, there's no way people are going to want to obey God without having the fear of losing their standing with him there. No one, seriously, Paul, this gospel of grace is going to make a bunch of lazy, fat Christians. And your movement's going to go away pretty quickly without the motivation 
of the cattle prod of losing your salvation, being stoned for not keeping the Sabbath properly and so forth. You're going to learn, Paul, this salvation by grace stuff doesn't really work when it comes to people growing more mature in the faith. Paul here lays out his vision for how sanctification works in a gospel of grace powered Christian community. Can you live a Christian life, one that is fully committed to Him, where we'll be disciples living out our lives as an act of worship, says, asks Romans 12? Yes, if you believe, receive, and can dare act on Romans 1 through 8, we will be willing to take up our cross and follow Christ in every area of our lives. Yeah, but wait a second. There's one area of our lives that surely this isn't going to work in. Romans 13. Does that sacrificial obedience and living by trusting grace in God apply to submitting to the authority of the government? Yeah, if you believe and can act on and dare trust Romans 1 through 8, we will be willing to submit to the authorities around us in the family, in the church, and in the state as is explicitly taught in Romans 13. Will it be easy? No. It's very difficult. It's very hard. But if we understand Romans 1 through 8, and we can, because God's Word is clear enough, then as risky as it feels, kids as risky as it feels to submit to your parents, as crazy as it feels to submit to your parents at times, as crazy as it feels to submit to legitimate church authority, as crazy as it feels to submit to legitimate authorities in the state, the danger and the risk of personal of the personal sin of rebellion is much greater it's much more dangerous says Romans 6 to your soul than what any outer authority can do to you I mean Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death Jesus makes an, a, a quite a long speech about those in the government who can come and kill you. They can only kill your body. Don't even worry about that. That's secondary. Worry about, he says, those who can kill the soul and cast both body and soul into hell. It's sin, personal sin that we have to be consumed with, compulsively, obsessively worried about to some healthy degree, personal sin. Authority, even when it's confused and evil and armed with malevolent intentions, cannot do worse to us and to our community than unrepentant sin. 
That's what will kill us. Romans 14 and 15 goes on. It's about Christian unity and how living life together in unity requires believing and understanding justification by faith alone. I can say yes or no to eating meat sacrificed to idols or today. I can say yes or no to eating meat magically created in a uh, Tyson chicken factory. Don't even Google what happens there. Okay? But that's not a big deal. That issue is not a big deal compared to our union with Christ. Compared to the unity of the church. Compared to living life together as free men and women. It's our union with Christ that gives us the confidence to give up personal rights and privileges particularly those who are in leadership. It's it's our union with Christ that gives those in leadership the confidence to give up personal rights and privileges and security in order to maintain the fruitful presence of Christ in our congregations, in our families, in our friendships. Now, if you didn't believe Romans 1 through 8, if you struggle to hear it and apply it and work it out, if it was all just a, a dark muddle to you, I get that. Then Romans 9 and 10 and 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and a little 16. And there's interesting things in 16 too. I'd love to talk about one day with someone. But those issues are going to feel like a huge challenge. Those issues I just skimmed over real fast. Man, those are just going to feel like one more brick in the backpack of the Christian life of how am I ever going to figure it out? How am I ever going to juggle and balance and, and, and do all that? I know I feel the weight of the issues that are raised in Romans 9 through 16, 15 as well. I feel the pressure on a regular basis to abandon living by grace and trust in Christ's promises and just try harder and win at all costs. So it's my prayer, it's my heart's desire that God would help us live and apply Romans 1 through 8 so that we would be able to properly respond to the challenges and the tests that the rest of the book of Romans lays before us. As I close, I have one particular matter that I'm most interested in that I want to press home before I finish. It's in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. If you have your scriptures, please turn there. Because, that's a big kind of therefore because he's setting up. So, because everything that just happened, everything that I just said, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My greatest concern for you this morning who have not received Romans 1 through 8 as a serious and meaningful adjustment to your world and life view is that you have missed the gospel. That you simply have not taken the gospel of God with the seriousness that it deserves. But here it is. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And not just saved like plucked out, left dangling there till Jesus comes back. But he'll bestow upon you a down payment of all of the riches, the adoption, the forgiveness, the protection from the evil one, the rescue from the guilt and shame He gives it. He gives it to all who put their hope in him. Let us pray. And so with this massive feast of the gospel set before us this morning, it would have made sense that we would need no sacraments. I mean... It's the Bible, it's true, it goes into our mind. But alas, we are not creatures of simple brain. We are not just brains walking around. Heart, soul, mind, strength. All of us has been made into a new creation that needs new food and new drink from our new master. So connect now, Holy Spirit, word and sacrament, so that as your people partake, some wild, holy multiplication occurs, such as fish, and loaves, but in our hearts, and acquired by faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen.